morning, everyone. Hi, AJ. Junior church, four years old through fourth grade. You can come right up front. Um, I really enjoyed Rod's uh, meditation, but it explained why he called me a mosquito this morning. I didn't understand it till he said that. So, how are y'all doing today? In this better weather today than it was the last week. You know, Christmas is coming. Cold weather's coming. Yeah, some of us like it, some of us hate it. Doesn't matter, it's still coming. This year, we're going through the life of Christ. We want to build our lives on the faith foundation of Jesus. Here, here's a picture of our theme. Um, we can try to build our lives on various ideas, but only through the life of Christ, only on the example of Jesus, can we truly have a strong and true foundation to live our faith on. The theme verse for this is 1 Peter chapter 2. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. And what's more, you are his holy priests. Through the me uh, me mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. For those who reject him, those who do not place their foundation, their faith foundation on Jesus, the stone that the builders reject has now become the cornerstone, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. For those who choose to live according to Jesus, according to the foundation of his word, they will be built up as holy priests, a living temple of God. Those who reject Jesus, their lives will stumble and they will fall. They will find the fate of full separation from God. This is why we want to make sure here that we are following the full example of Jesus and, and obeying his word. So far this year, we've looked at Jesus first in the Old Testament. We saw how he was not just present, but working in and through the people. We looked at greater detail next of the physical birth of Jesus, then his baptism, his temptation. We just went through the calling of most of his disciples. You'll see we didn't look at every single one of the 12 disciples, and the ones we did not look at have very similar stories to what we've already gone over and. I thought instead of repeating the same sermon, um, let's start moving on into the life of Jesus. Now, I hope you are ready because we're going to get into something really interesting. And, and I just want to let you know, Nick Helbert came to me right before I came up here. And he says, you have my full permission to preach as long as you want to. And it's my fault if they don't like it. Let's go. All right. So. If you remember, when we looked at the summary of the four Gospels, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we saw each one looked at Jesus in a different particular lens. Matthew views Jesus as the king. He's royalty. Mark kind of looks at Jesus as the servant. He came to seek and serve. Luke sees the humanity of Jesus, the everyday man that God inhabited so that we could come to know him. And then John's view of Jesus is his deity, his godness. 
the divine nature. So today we're going to actually turn to the Gospel of John and remember this. So we're looking at it through John's lens here, the deity of Jesus. And the word gospel means what, anybody? Good news. That's all it means. So if you hear gospel, it means good news. The good news according to John And John consistently invites people to come and see Jesus. And we need to know this is the greatest invitation you can ever have, which is come and see. In John 129, John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is saying, come and look, come and see this Jesus. I think this is probably one of the reasons that this text we're going to look at today John records more miracles than any of the the other three Gospels. And the first miracle might be a surprise to some people. The first recorded miracle, and it is only found here in John, it's a miracle at the wedding of Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. Now, first, let me just tell you something. This sermon is no way saying you can get drunk. Okay? Getting drunk is a sin. Do not get drunk. Can I say it any blunter? No drunk. All right. Do not misquote me on this. Don't get drunk. Now, only John tells us about this miracle, about turning water into wine. Canaan's about four miles away from Nazareth, and this is quite, frank, quite easily possibly a, a wedding of a close family member or a close friend of Jesus. Now, remember John's purpose in telling us about Jesus? It's in 20, verse 31. John 20, verse 31. But these are written so you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember, the divine nature the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. John wants everybody who reads his good news account to understand Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And so with that, we have to put that glasses on when we look at this account of the first miracle. John chapter 2. Now I'm going to read through the passage, but we're going to break it up and look at more things. John chapter 2, verse 1. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Stop. John starts by giving us two pieces of background here. First, there's a wedding in Canaan. And what's the other bit of information? His mom's there. Okay? So you know, just if you've ever been to a wedding where your mom's there, you know Jesus has got to make sure he's got nothing on his lips because she's going to lick her thumb and make sure he looks good. Okay? Now, why does John start by talking about the mother of Jesus and not by Jesus? Because there's an important thing that's going to happen through his mother. Okay, verse 2. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Notice they didn't just crash it. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Now, first off, scholars disagree here in how they answer three related questions to these verses. Why does the mother of Jesus come and talk to him? It's not her job. She's just invited there. Why does she care about this? Uh, Two, how are we supposed to hear her words? Is she coming and saying, 
Oh my goodness, Jesus, they ran out of wine. Or is it Jesus, they ran out of wine? <laughs> See, how you hear those words changes the meaning. Is she criticizing Jesus for not bringing a, a gift of wine? Maybe for um, not covering drinks or something? Bringing more people, maybe only a few of the disciples, and he brought all of them? Or she's simply appealing to him to help? And then third, what exactly does she want Jesus to do? Is she wanting a miracle? Is she wanting him to run to the store? Is she, what is she wanting from Jesus? It's possible to answer these questions in various ways. The text is very open at this point. And the reason I think it's open is because John doesn't care to answer those questions. Those aren't the point. We can get sidetracked and go on all these rabbit trails of what does this mean and that. But that's going into the text and where John doesn't want us to go. They don't matter to John. What does matter is two things. They ran out of wine at a wedding, which is a big deal. This is a shameful thing that would have happened to the bride's or the groom's family. Secondly, the mother of Jesus goes to Jesus, believing he will do something about it. They ran out of it, and she goes to the one who has something to do. She doesn't actually ask Jesus to do anything here. How many of you have moms have come and said something to you? It wasn't a question. Is your room cleaned up? That's not a question. That's an insinuation that you better get in there and do it right. Okay? She has hopes here that Jesus, upon hearing these words, will be moved to do something. She comes to Jesus. They ran out of wine. This is a family friend. We can't let shame fall upon them. And you know Jesus, the compassionate one. He's going to answer with love and grace, right? Let's look what he says. Dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. Now, this sounds brutal. His mom comes. And if my mom would have came to me and said, hey, we have a problem here. So, Dear woman. That's not my problem. Okay? It sounds brutal here. But what is John trying to show us about Jesus? That he's got this divine nature, right? You go to John chapter 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, he said, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus at this point is dying on the cross and we're reading almost his last words. As he's dying, he thinks of Mary, his earthly mother, and he wants to make sure she's taken care of. And he once again says, woman it's not supposed to be harsh in our culture it would be but in this time it wouldn't jesus is a good son even in the end and calling a lady woman back then was actually a sign of dear, of respect going up and saying dear woman it's elevating her so we can't read our culture into this okay because of this, because you are a dear woman, I want to make sure even though I am suffering and it's 
hard for me to even breathe, let alone talk, I want you taken care of. Now, if even woman, the, when he says, dear woman, isn't supposed to sound brutal, the rest of his response kind of is shocking. Basically, Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? It's not my time. How many of you heard the phrase, not my monkey? It's a good one. Not my monkey, not my circus. That belongs over there. I'm just going to sit here and watch the mess and the crazy happen. Right? That's kind of what Jesus is saying. Hey, that's not my monkey. I'm not in charge of that. It's not my responsibility. The sense of these words is that there's a gap between Jesus and his mother. She comes and says, they ran out of wine. That's not my focus here. What is John trying to make sure we know? That he is the son of God, that he is deity, and she is worried about wine. Surface level. And John wants to make sure we are seeing Jesus in a vertical level. The mother of Jesus is concerned about a wedding, but Jesus has other priorities that are so much more important. And yet Jesus hears her words, her unspoken request, and he does nothing at first. He gives a reason. He says, my hour has not yet come. My plan, my purpose, I am focused on this. It seems Jesus is reluctant to begin at this time of these series of events that would culminate to the cross. Maybe he's sitting there saying, I just want to enjoy this before I start that rough road. I want to enjoy this wedding of a family or a close friend. I want to celebrate it and not get the focus off them and onto what I can do. He didn't want to initiate that violent road that God had planned for him yet. Jesus isn't worried about this wedding. Instead, he's focused on a much different wedding, a wedding feast that's awaiting in the future. And he didn't want to take this public declaration, this messianic miracle to take place at this time. And you know moms, whenever their son says something, the moms always agree. They always say, that's right, honey, you're right. I'm not going to do that. So verse 5 shows that. So his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mom, it's not my time. Okay, do whatever he tells you. She went and got it. Now, how did she just respond? She assumes, yeah, it's not your time, but you're going to do something. Because she knows that he's a good son. She is open to any possibility. Do whatever he tells you. She goes to these servants I don't care what he says. I don't care what he tells you to do. Do anything, whatever it is. That means it could be outlandish. It could be weird. Do whatever it is. It may be um, confusing, but really what she's saying here, see this guy right here? Obey him. Now, who is John trying to make sure we see Jesus as? The son of God. Whatever it is, just obey him. Now, verse 6, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Now, up until now, John has not gotten into any details of this event. Now, I want to know how did uh, Mary sound at this. We want to know why she came in the first place. 
Was there bigger um, crowds that came? Was there a, a short crop that year? What was it that caused all this confusion? I want to know why Jesus was first reluctant. And yet, we have nothing from the author. No clear answers. And then John goes into a description of jars. Jars like this. These are actual ceremonial jars. They weren't wine jars. These were sitting there next to a place where they would ceremonially be cleaned. I don't care about jars. I want to know what Jesus is going to do. And yet John focuses on this. He slows the story down here and gives us two more pieces of information. There was a wedding. Jesus' mother is there. Jesus doesn't want to do it. And now there's jars. The first thing we need to understand is these stone jars were used by Judeans for ritual cleansing. And these stone jars were enormous. It said 20 to 30 gallons. Now, I'm going to tell you, I have lots of fish tanks. You, you all know that. And, you know, some people say, well, that's a big fish tank. No, that's a 20 gallon. That's not that big. But when you have to move ceremonial water, when you have to move a stone jar full of 20 to 30 gallons, how many of you carry five, bu five gallon buckets of water before? That's not easy, is it? We're talking about the, what, hey, they're out of those little jars, those little pitchers of wine. And Jesus looks over and sees ceremonial jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons. When we hear these, we need to stop. What is John trying to show us here? Mary said, do whatever he tells. Verse 7, Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. What's the next word? When? What's that tell us? They did it, right. When the jars had been filled, and in the Greek here it says filled to the brim, it means that they're, you ever seen that water when you fill it all the way, it's got that little bubble of water that goes over the top. That's kind of what this is saying, all the way to the top, okay? When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out. We need wine. You want me to dip out a, what? Dip it out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Did they test it? Did they check it? It's water. Go give. All right, but the crazy lady, the mom, wanted me to do this, so I'm going to do this. But here we find a rhythm of command and obedience. Remember who is John showing us? The Son of God. Jesus says, fill. They filled. Jesus says, take, and they take. His mother told them, whatever he says and do, it doesn't matter how weird or confusing. They obey the word of Jesus. And what do we see so far in the story? We see the mother of Jesus showing faith in her son. And we see people acting out of faith, obeying it. In verse 7, we see faith and obedience working together. Faith in who Jesus is and obedience on that. Does it say anything about understanding? You know why we can't always understand it? Because who does John say Jesus is? The Son of God, beyond our understanding. And notice there's one more detail in these verses that wasn't necessary. I already said that. Filled it to this brim. So we have six huge stone jars completely filled. Now let's go to verse 9. He's expecting the, the master of ceremonies. He tasted the what? Water. That was now wine. Not knowing where it had come from, 
though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best till now. Now, right here, I want to know the mechanics of this miracle. Did Jesus go over and just dip his finger in and stir it, and it turned into wine? Did Jesus touch the, the jars and pray? At what point did it turn into wine? Was it after they dipped it? Was it when they poured it into the master ceremonies cup? Was it when he drank it? When did it happen? And you know what John tells us? Nothing. He went into details about jars, but not this. Because again, they are not important. What is important? John wants us to know two qualities about this wine. It's very good wine. It's better than what's come before. Now again, they were not all plastered at this wedding. Drunk is bad. What they would usually do is have a watered down wine and they just keep adding some water because they would get a little relaxed. Let's say it that way. They were starting to get that way. And no way is Jesus saying it's okay to give them the really potent stuff. That's not what he's saying here. The master of ceremonies is ignorant about a key factor. And notice it said that. Where had the wine come from? That's a key point here. That's uh, back in verse 9. And then it said in parentheses, but the servants knew. Those who listened to Jesus and obeyed, no. We who are reading this account, no. So what do we make of this story so far? We can read this story at a, at a lower level here and understand that this is a miraculous thing that Jesus did at this wedding. He saved some face, uh, the reputation of the groom and his whole family, and he, he gave them some great wine, and the master ceremony would be saying, man, they were so great. They had this great wine. It was wonderful, blessed event. We can marvel at the fact that Jesus can turn water into wine, or we can put on the glasses of what John wants us to see and raise our, our views, raise our eye line and go to a deeper understanding and catch that higher level of meaning that John has hidden throughout this event. And what is this higher level? When we read about what Jesus did, we are supposed to see what Jesus brings is better and comes in greater measure than all that precedes it. Whatever Jesus brings is not just better than before, but it's in bigger, greater measure than it was. It wasn't these little pitchers of wine. It was 20 to 30 gallon jars, huge jars. It wasn't just wine. It was better than all of it before. Which means to fully understand this, this miracle here, we can't start here. We need to back up a little bit. In John 1, verses 15 and 17, we're just going to turn the page here. John testifies about him when he shouted to the crowds, This is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater, better than I am. For he existed long before me. And from his abundance, 
in better measure, in greater measure, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. And the Greek here means continual, a blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Nick said it's going to be a long sermon. Upon blessing upon blessing. That's what it's saying. For the law was given through Moses, what was previous, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ, the better. The gift and the truth is through Jesus Christ. Jesus richly gives. He gives out of his own fullness. And what he gives, his grace, his favor, his blessing, his joy, his help, is far superior than anything that came before. What, be what came before Jesus? The Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and all that. And that can give us a, a framework for understanding this chapter too. There was a time in Israel's history when purification, ritual purification was a good thing. They would use something like a 20 to 30 gal, uh, stone jar to ceremonially clean themselves. It was a sign of God's grace, of his favor and his kindness. It was a good, it, it was good that God made a way for them to be cleansed so that they could come into his presence and worship him. That was grace on God's part. But what Jesus offers is something vastly superior because he takes what goes into it, he changed it and put it within us to cleanse us from within. This wine is not the focus, it's what Jesus can do. He is the son of God. They marvel at the quality of the wine. Have we really looked at the quality of his grace, of his faithfulness, his love, and his power? No one who drinks that wine is going to miss the old water. Can you imagine? Oh, that's really good wine, but can I have that water again? Oh, it's so good. But ah, I just want that old stuff. Do you want, back then, it was bad to drink normal water. Do you know why? They didn't have Brita filters. They went down to the river and scooped it up in there. And guess what else was in the river, sometimes upstream even? Washing of the laundry, bathing of the livestock, and the sewage line. How many of you want to drink the water? No. And so they'd mix a little wine in it to make sure you didn't taste it. And that was normal for them. And here he is giving them purity of this wine. It is something greater than anything. And nobody who tastes what Jesus offers is going to miss the old. Verse 11 in our text. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him another translation says pledged their allegiance to him here for the first time in the timeline of Jesus walk here on the planet we read about signs this miraculous sign when Jesus does miracles they are more than just spectacular actions they are signs that point to something greater now, what does this sign point to? It says it in that verse. This miraculous sign was where he revealed his glory. What is glory? Now, we have ideas about it, but what really, what is glory? 
I, I tried to come up with a definition, and I didn't even like what I read in Webster. I, uh, so, to really see what the glory of God looks like, we're going to turn to Exodus 24, starting in verse 15. Then Moses climbed up the mountain. Remember, they were all just coming out of Egypt. They'd seen all the fake glory of Egypt and all the fakeness of it. And then the 10 plagues came and they saw this. Now they're at the mountain of God. Moses climbed up the mountain and, he, and a cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Right there, you know what I see? The glory of God is visible. We can see a difference. They could see and feel the difference. In fact, when Moses came down from there, his face was radiating. It was almost like he got the reverse sunburn. His, sign was, his face was shining. And so he had to put a veil on because people wanted to worship him. He's like, no, 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 focus on God, not on me. The glory is evidence. God's glory is visible. No one who saw that cloud, no one who saw that consuming fire that was up there could doubt God is here. They saw the glory. The divine one is among them. Now turn back to verse 11 of John 2, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. John tells us that Jesus turning the water into wine revealed his glory. The cloud came down, the consuming fire erupted and the disciples believed. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory is what He's shown on that. It wasn't wine, it was His glory. Most of the time, the world can be explained and understood scientifically. Just like that water, when it's at the top of a little thing, you can see that bubble. It's because of the tension. The water molecules are pulling at each other so it can actually go above the level and it'll hold itself before spilling out until you get too much tension, put a couple more drops in, and then it'll spill out. That's the scientific thing. The world moves in regular, order, order, um, ordered, predictable ways. It follows scientific laws. And then there are miracles. There are signs that shatter our carefully constructed views of reality. If you were one of Jesus' disciples and you were there, one of those servants, and you saw Jesus turn that water into wine, in all seriousness, what would you do? A lot of people say, oh, I'd say, yeah, fill her up. A lot of people like to joke about it, but that's not what the disciples did. They saw his glory. They didn't see the wine. They saw Jesus' glory, and they believed in him. And too many times, Christians, what we do is we see, wow, wine. And then we start putting it into our little constructs of our world, and we miss the glory of God. 
We've had 2,000 years as a church to grow and use these scriptures and to get over and get past them sometimes. We read these stories with a sense of superiority that, oh yeah, I know what happened there. The disciples didn't have any of that. They'd never seen this. And what they have is this one act where Jesus does this miracle and they see his glory. And up to this point in John, the disciples had been there, but they were quiet. They're just following. But Jesus made sure in verse 1, we knew they were there. The disciples were also there. And we know they saw all of this. They haven't participated. They just saw it. Here they saw Jesus' glory, or even a part of it. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And the disciples saw it and believed in him. In the Gospel of John, the disciples have already committed to following Jesus. They're already following him. They've already given their allegiance to Jesus. They've come a long way. They've left their nets. They've left their jobs, and they're following Jesus. But now they believe in him. Something changes from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and it's not the wine. It's the glory of Jesus. Seeing the sign, seeing Jesus' glory results in the disciples giving their allegiance to Jesus more deeply than they had before. They followed Jesus earlier, but they didn't believe in him yet like this. They see his glory and their faith is deepened and strengthened. We have this tendency to believe, to believe that faith and believing as something, it, it doesn't change. I, I believed in God. And, and that's just where it is. It's what it does. But when you commit to Jesus, your commitment should not stay there. It should continue to grow deeper and stronger into him. I'm going to say something very blunt. If you have the same level of faith as you did 5, 10, 15 years ago, you are not growing in faith and I probably really don't know who Jesus is anymore. You have walked away. Oh, yeah, I went to church here. Hey, I'm good. The disciples were already following, but they didn't know who he was until that glory erupted on them, and now they believed. Their faith deepened. It got bigger. And this should happen at least in part to any of us when we get to know who Jesus is more and more. When we read this story, read it with the eyes of faith, we need to understand what we're really seeing and what we're seeing is all the Old Testament summed up in a living form in Jesus and getting even bigger and better. That's what it is. The Old Testament prophecies, the abundance of wine, it's linked to all these other promises. God promised that a day is coming when Jerusalem will be safe forever, freed forever from her enemies. She'll be a people holy to God and she'd receive prosperity that God promised in Deuteronomy forever. There'll be no more tears, no more death, just blessings, including lots and lots of wine, not for drunk. And when Jesus turns the water into wine, all those with faith, with eyes of faith, start seeing all this Old Testament is now living in front of them in fulfillment. They're seeing the sign of God and his glory is here. 
They are standing there seeing greater grace than God had promised. And that's how we're supposed to see this first event. Jesus offers superior in greater number. Jesus offered superior grace than Moses. It's superior both in quality and quantity. And no one who had saw the grace Jesus offers it, samples it and goes, nah, I want to go back to the old laws. I'm going to go back to the old ways of making God happy. How many of you would like to have to start raising animals and carrying them and then sacrificing them and going through all the rituals? And that included putting that blood on you in your Sunday temple best. You have to do all that and have God separated from you versus having Jesus opening the door where the Spirit can come live within you. Once we see the glory of Jesus, we don't want to go back. And we're supposed to look back on those old things, not with a sense of regret or a pang of loss. We look back on those things and we find ourselves praising Jesus. He brought something bigger and better and gave it to us. I don't have to go to the temple. You do not have to raise a sacrificial um, lamb for you. You don't have to go to a priest because Jesus came to you. And when you see his glory, you're not going to want to go back to that. Our natural tendency in life is to slowly take God's grace more and more for granted. Kind of like with coffee. I'm not saying coffee is grace. But when some of you drink coffee, it is so much more graceful to be around you. When I first started drinking coffee, I was, it was kind of amazing. I was like, man, it just helped me wake up and it got me alert. I'm like, oh, this is great. And now I get up and it's 7.30 and I haven't had my cup. Oh, give me my coffee. Where's that grace, that, that excitement that I was like, oh, it's, it feels so good again. Instead, we just drink it without tasting it. You just live without thinking about what God has done for you. This passage is showing us, this event in Jesus' life is to show us to stop. Look at the glory of God. Look how he's living and richly blessing inside of you. Through Jesus, God has given you a grace that's extraordinary, both in quality and quantity. And if you truly understand this, your life is going to be filled with joy. I'm not saying you're going to be one of those happy, psycho-happy people, even when bad things happen. That's just, that's weird. But you're going to have a joy even in the midst of that, because you can see the glory of God radiating around you. Your heart should be lightened and gladdened. In this whole thing and in the whole book of John, John invites us to come and see the power of Jesus. And the power isn't on the stuff of the world. The power is in changing us if he can change water into wine not just wine but the best wine that master ceremonies had ever tasted if he can take ordinary h2o and infuse it with that richness of color and the taste and all that imagine what he can do to you imagine how that blandness of our life without christ that sin darkening 
life if, um, within us. How he can take that, pour over us the blood, the wine of his grace and mercy. And not ceremonially outside cleanse us, but inside and change us into him. This particular miracle signifies that there is a transformational power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. The water of the law into the wine of the gospel. Jesus changed the water of the empty living into the wine of richness and fullness. From water of living only for today to the wine of living for eternity. Are you ready for him to do that to you? Some of you have never done that. Some of you have never accepted that. And, and I want to say, why wait? Those servants, they heard it and they obeyed. They didn't have to wait for understanding. They just had to obey. And then they got to see the glory. The disciples had to be willing and watching. And then they acted on what they saw. And so whether you're the servant who had never seen Jesus, who had never accepted him, will you change that today? Maybe you're one of the disciples who already believed, but it's now time to let that glory shine into your life and then into it and then back out so that you can change the world through his glory. What are you going to do? I'm ready for God to change me even more and better. What about all of us? We're going to stand and pray. And, and if you want to make that decision, won't you come and talk to us, whether it's up front or meet us in the back or talk with one of the elders. We want to help you see that in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. God, I thank you that you did this miraculous event that on the surface level is just neat. But when we look at what you are saying to us, you astound me the richness, the fullness that you can give us is so much more than I can even bear to understand. Father, thank you for changing us. Forgive us when we want to go back to that old way. Forgive us when we want to go back to a tasteless life and help us to understand that richness and fullness only comes through you. Reveal your glory to us again. Thank you, Father, for your death Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for being the one who changes us into a likeness of you so we can live with God the Father for eternity. And in your name we pray. Amen.